Welcome back, team. So, covering off on our last episode with Claude's. Um, some really great tips picking up off Claude, just uh, you know how we go about a, a sustainable way of being able to eat for life and how we identify with food and how um, you know it's just super important that uh, e- eating is a healthy uh, ritual that we do and that you know we don't feel bad about the food that we eat, that we're not trying to make ourselves feel a certain way, whether it's guilt or um, any anything that's negative with food, it, it's always about you know enjoying yourself and en- enjoying it the right way. Um, and some really good stuff uh, as well that Claude touched on uh, that she's doing with Fit Stop and the challenges. Um, also, as well, just with uh, how amazing it was uh, with all the other stuff that's going on in terms of how dietitians work and. And what it takes to be a dietitian and how how to get involved in it. So that was really great. So guys, if you've not uh, listened to Claude yet, please go back and uh, give a good listen. It's very, very interesting coming from someone that's been in the game now for a while and um, some of the insights she has to offer. Alrighty guys, so what we've got this week, um, holy heck, absolutely amazing. So team, uh, we're going to be breaking up this podcast into two episodes again, just because of the content that was available. We've got Dalton and Ben uh, jumping on. So Ben is a, uh, a long-term friend of mine. Uh, we've lived together, we've trained together, we've worked together, uh, been good mates for a while, and um, Dalton is Ben's coach. So Ben competed in the Arnold's this year, um, six weeks ago from filming this podcast, and um it's very interesting hearing what Ben has to say and then Dalton um, confirming or reinforcing it as to why he's done that and the reasons and methodology behind it as to how he is going to make sure that Ben excels. Um, some really, really good stuff in there, guys. So, um, if you do get lost along the way because you hear some scientific jargon, it is quite easy to follow. It's really Ben giving um, his insight. Now, don't get me wrong, Ben is still very intelligent, but almost in a lay term from Ben and then a very scientific point from Dalt. So, guys, I'm going to split this up into two podcasts. Uh, it's going to be absolutely amazing because I don't want to overload your brains over two hours. So they're going to be... Um, just over an hour each podcast. Guys, you're going to absolutely love it. And a tiny bit of housekeeping team, make sure you go and give us a follow at uh, ATP Fitness. We'd love to hear any of your feedback as well, team. So at the end of the podcast, please give us a thumbs up or a rating uh, and leave us a review. Also, team, if you if you know anyone uh, that you think would be interested on jumping on the podcast and have an interesting story to tell, we'd love to hear from them. So please feel free to reach out. Um, and we'd love to get them on the show and have a chat. But team, uh, we're going to hook into Ben and Dalt now and uh, their podcast. So guys, I really hope you enjoy it. I know you're going to enjoy it. Some really great information in here, team. Uh, And yeah, let's get on with the show. Welcome, team. My name is Josh Atkins, and you're listening to Australia's Most Adventurous Podcast. Um, well, my name is Dalton Frank. I am a 
coach at Flex Success. I've been with them for almost 18 months now. Um, before that, I was a personal trainer for myself for five years. And prior to that, I had some army and uh, army experience doing some special forces training and some mortars training, so heavy, heavy equipment and stuff. That's what really got me into the whole fitness scene was trying to keep up for my job there. Um, I realized that I wanted to transition into more fitness when I saw everyone else getting more fit or stronger and I couldn't pick up why I wasn't improving. So I realized I didn't want to be the chubby fat kid anymore. Cool, Benny. Uh, so my name is Ben Mayfield-Smith. Uh, I'm the current store manager for Nutrition Warehouse Ginger Lee. Uh, I've been a part of the company now for about two years. Prior to that, I was a level one ASCA strength coach, um, qualified, done my cert three and four. Uh, so I'm not just uh, Joe Blow that doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, prior to that, I was in a bit of full-time caring, uh, but mostly that was due to a back injury. I've done all sorts of trades and uh, physical manual handling jobs. Um, main reason why I got into fitness and nutrition, um, I've always had a keen aspect to sport, uh, understanding sport, being competitive, and then obviously improving health and fitness. So I just took the, the love for gym and just went with it. Cool. All right. And so how do you fellas know each other? Um, That's an awkward story. <laughs> actually, that, that is a bit of an awkward story now. Uh, predominantly through Nutrition Warehouse, but uh, prior to that, um, I always had engagement through training. Um, Ethan obviously used to manage Nutrition Warehouse out of Bavel, and Dalton was one of his staff there. And I would go in there and like, uh, the switch door was my local, so I'd go in there a fair bit. And then just got talking to Dalton through Ethan. Um, just having a common interest and knowledge on training, we began talking and utter and utter crap, and then just bounced ideas off each other, talking and training. And then uh, at a certain point, we started working together, and I just said, look, I want to push my physique. Uh, I can't play footy anymore. I can't do uh, like any sort of competitive physical sport. Um, I want to push my physique, and I trusted him to take my coaching. Cool. And how long's the coaching been going on now for? December of 17? Almost 60 weeks, yeah. 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 60 weeks? Yeah, almost, yeah. Yeah, wow. So in that time when Ben first came to me, he had uh, he had some extra loving. He, um, had, he had taken the, the concept of uh, train hard and eat hard a little bit further than what I like to see for most of my athletes um, with a bit more freedom and flexibility than I like. So we stripped him back from where he was, re, uh, pulled back all his movements, started from uh, scratch, dropped down his body fat percentage down into a, a better range for him to respond better to at least training, nutrition, sleep. Um, and then from there we started building him up, picking up the muscle that he had uh, lost with just the change from quantity of training to quality of training. Um, stripping back to obviously some body fat um, meant losing some small muscle amount. We built that back up, uh, then he had his barley trip and we started prep just after that. Yeah. And ran all the way in until he was a monster. <laughs> Looking pretty big now, mate, as Monster's well. Monster's debatable. Uh, monster part one. Volume part one, one of Monster. <laughs> it's, a, it's a book. There's going to be many, many chronicles. <laughs> awesome, fellas. So let's, uh, let's backtrack. So, Ben, let's talk about the reason why you got into bodybuilding and why you had to stop playing footy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the main aspect was in 2013, I was a chippy, um, semi-professional playing league. Uh, so I was chasing you know, contracts as usual, sort of like 21 year old does, um, 
trying to push 40 and see how I go with that. I was in a pretty intense motor vehicle accident, uh, so I ended up tearing two discs in my L4 and 5. Uh, pretty intense sciatic nerve damage, was losing motor function in my left leg for a fair while. Took about 12 months of just basic movement pattern and core rehabilitation before I could even touch weights again, which as a 22 year old is pretty disheartening, especially when you've spent the better part of six, seven years in the gym for strength and power training. Um, my biggest thing when I was younger was obviously being small, playing halfback and hooker. Uh, the main thing I wanted to do was get stronger to fit into playing men's grade. Uh, so to lose that was pretty intense. Spent probably two years then from there, um, in and out of courtrooms, in and out of doctors, in and out of physio, psychiatrists, uh, physiologists, everything, uh, spinal surgeries, uh, epidural, cortisone, steroid injections, every aspect you try and think of to fix the back. Um, avoided everything the doctors told me to stay away from, which uh, I then found was actually not the approach that worked for me. Uh, so then we moved into, well, I moved into adding back in my own training around what they said to avoid. Um, and I just noticed my body responded better. Uh, pretty much realized that I wasn't going to return to work. I uh, wasn't going to be able to play footy again, um, especially at the competitive level that I wanted to play. So I thought being 22, 23, what is something I can do that I enjoy and still keep my head out of just being down and depressed and it was gym and then just noticing the response and the focus and the um, the love for training just kind of amplified from there and then the more they told me I was never going to play footy again. Um, I gave one more crack, uh, I played like a low grade local around here for half a season but it doesn't pay money and bills come first so with Nutrition Warehouse it's a bit more retail obviously so we have to sacrifice weekends um so kind of to give up playing the old saddie game yeah so from there i was just like i may as well just knuckle down and focus on what i can do and that's train cool so what were the kind of things that the doctors told you to stay away from the exercises and movements um contrary to like what i would have thought uh the main things and uh it's no discredit to the doctor but a very generic approach is obviously stay away from deadlift squats heavy loading like mechanisms that load through the spine um, from the top down, which I didn't agree with, but that was the approach that my lawyers needed to see that I was abiding by what the doctor said and that was the approach that the doctors advised. So I ran with it, did it, um, didn't notice much improvement. So then it was from there, once the doctor sort of said, it is what it is, and I got the, uh, so you go through what's called a, um, a TPD, which is essentially a temporary or permanent disability assessment. Um, and at that point, they lodge a number, which essentially tells you how impaired your certain limb or aspect of the body will be forever. And I think mine was essentially at 100%, my spine will only ever be 87%. Yeah, okay. So that compromisation then was like, right, this is how it is forever. I was like, well, I can be in pain forever or I can try and minimise the pain and still be in pain forever. So I just took the approach of throwing back in deadlift squats. Yep. Um, but it's predominantly those exercises, like those compound loading exercises they said to stay away from, which to me was counterintuitive. So what would you do for legs when you were going through that, just all isolates? A lot of isolates, a lot of uh, machine work um, and things that didn't compromise my spine. Yeah. Uh, so I spent a lot of time um, in neutral positions, figuring out what did and didn't activate my sciatic nerve pain and what did and didn't uh, flare up my spine. There would be some days where I'd try things and then that night I wouldn't be able to move for about six hours. Like I would yeah. just be in agonizing pain where my was just um, L5 and that would just flare to the point that moving was agonizing. Um, and it's one of those things where you can't really explain to people. So like, yeah, you tell a doctor and they just say, oh yeah, like, you know, 
half the doctors I'd see would say, I'm full of it. And then the other half would say, we'll try this or try that. But it was just a matter of uh, process of elimination, really. Letting yep. you have a coach at that time or a doctor or a trainer that actually knew what they were doing. Um, and that sort of drove me to Dalton anyway. Was I like to find someone who knows more than me, but can also increase my knowledge. Um, and so the doctors just weren't doing that. Um, and then from there, yeah, it was just like, figure out what did work for me, what didn't work, what flared it, what activated it. Um, and then, yeah, it just went from there. Cool. So I guess with this uh, question for both you boys, with the doctors, I mean, you can see where they come from in terms of we don't want to make anything worse. So they definitely err on the side of caution. But I would have heard more stories of people that do get back into training, that doing proper training as well, not just like kind of winging it, doing it old school. Proper training either with a coach or by serious extensive like growth of your own knowledge. I've seen more people come out better than what they've had their doctors try and prescribe for them. Do you, feel, do, you, do you fellas agree? Like I obviously can see where they're coming from. We don't want to make you worse, but at the same time, it's almost like there needs to be this new shift in their focus of with resistance training. Yeah, I mean, I, I do see that. Um, for me, I felt like just a broad approach. Like it's kind of like paint everyone with the same brush. Obviously they, they have their like their knowledge and scope of practice. Um, and so they've got to cover themselves. Yeah. Uh, especially as a GP or an advanced specialist. Uh, but at the same time, it's, to me, if you're going to see a specialist, my specific injury of the spine did not need to be treated as the same as someone else's injury of the spine yep. and should be looked at individually. Same mm. way you would, you would approach any client, any nutritional client, any PT client, every aspect of someone is different. Yep. So approaching each person the same way is not going to give you the same results. Mm. So to me, um, it was kind of like just a print and click, copy paste back program. Is that what it felt like? Pretty much, yeah. Essentially, yeah. that's what it was more of a what to avoid than what to do. Right. And so that was like more frustrating to me than anything because I knew what I was already doing somewhat from like uh, footy training, weights training, power training. Yeah. It was like I still had, a, I felt I had a better knowledge than what the GP was giving, what the specialist was giving me credit for, and we could have worked more intensely around it. And so that was sort of just felt like I was left up to my own devices to improve myself by avoiding what he said. Yeah. So I definitely feel like there could be a bigger shift to specificity in how they approach injuries yeah uh, i guess that's why you go see rehab specialists and that sort of thing but at the same time he was a specialist mm. and it was just kind of like he just had a file of like your back rehab print use this can you recall what that specialist's physique looked like did he look like someone that trained oh, no, as a part of his a, life like, he's just a old dude like he studied and by no means do I ever correlate that uh, like a physique implies your knowledge but oh, at the same it's, time yes, it's yeah. like he, but you can tell if someone yeah. actually is active or not yeah, as well no, he was just, he was a very typical like um, so he's more book knowledge yeah. rather than practical application yeah for sure yeah okay and look that's not to say every specialist is like that but yeah for definitely. sure definitely like if you're I, I feel like and age is also a massive one there as well 21 as opposed to the exact same incident on a 40 50 plus person at that age it's kind of like right sustainability and just being able to move is key whereas for you it's like you know, a you're able to repair better through your body just because of how young you were at the time hormones yeah. and everything else but also quality of life like quality of life for say the next 30 years as opposed to the next 60 to 80 years is yeah. a pretty big deal and something that I feel should be taken on board 100% he um, 
it was definitely like uh, like that was the approach kind of thing um, like let's just accept how it is as if I was 80 you know 90 or whatever and that was just my next 10 years like just suck it up yeah, or whatever as opposed to let's take what you've got and improve it and we'll try and minimise the pain and the aspects in that regard um, definitely didn't feel like that was the approach that was being applied mm-hmm. and so that's when the approach became on my own shoulders to apply it yeah. I was like well basically I can suck up the pain like you know the doctors and stuff when I go to court they'll be like well we've seen you at the gym and you're training and I was like well yeah do you want me to train and try and get back to work and better or do you want me to sit there and suffer and sulk like uh, yes the the uh, event was traumatising and you know, painful and that sort of thing but you can either wallow in self-pity or you can make attempts to improve it yeah. I'm not going to be in pain regardless should, be, should, be, should I be in pain to heal it or should I be in pain from leaving it yeah. It was essentially my uh, theory behind it. Perfect, yeah. Kind of glass half full rather than half empty. Yeah, that'll sit there and, you know, be down and yeah. why me kind of thing as yeah. opposed to why not. Good. Good attitude. All right, Dollar, let's jump on you, mate. Um, so you kind of really started to experience your passion for fitness while still in Army? Yeah. How did that come around? <laughs> well, um, so I signed up when I was 17. I stayed in until I was 21. Um, I was an infantry, and that meant getting posted to Darwin. It's <laughs> fucking hot up there. Robinson <laughs> Barracks. Oh, no. So, um, yeah, so I trained up there, uh, and uh, we had a mechanized unit, which meant that we had access to armored carriers, which are essentially uh, like a, a bus with tracks. Yeah, was that armored. when they were still five? Five seven. Right. No, they just split to, from five seven to five. Okay. And seven was down in Adelaide. Yeah. Um, so, what year was that? I got there at uh, 2010. Right, I would have. I got there the same year. I was yeah. posted to Fire Bar out for one year. There you go. Yeah, I was um, the one. The re the, the people that stayed back from um, Afghanistan. So that was yep. like, okay. yeah. Our initial exposure was yeah. we got up there September um, of that year and went through all the basic training to acclimatize and get yourself settled there yep. and stuff. And then, so everyone went off to Afghanistan. We had, um, we were left to our own devices for about a year. Uh, and in that year, it was trained with everyone, trying to improve your fitness, see how you were going. Um, and the people that I was paired against, mostly around my own age, kept beating me all the time. And I was fucking, <laughs> I was so annoyed by it. And I am very competitive. So I um, wanted to figure out how I could be better. And so I just trained harder. I didn't care what I ate. I didn't care what I drank. I smoked full time. I drank uh, at least $10,000 worth of um, yeah, alcohol in that year. It's oh man, like, that happy hour off pay uh, at the boozer. Jeez, uh, you take I, $20 down there and see you later, you're done. Ratchet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so Great. it was, it was very awesome uh, life really conducive to long-term health um, <laughs> and it really makes sense why i couldn't improve but i couldn't see it for the life of me at the time i was too young too naive didn't understand so um yeah i really didn't like being beaten so i figured out that i would start reading some bodybuilding.com magazines and forums <laughs> to try and improve my knowledge and before i knew it i thought i knew shit and i didn't <laughs> And so I tried stuff on myself and it just seemed to make it worse and I couldn't figure out what the fuck was going on. So um, one day I stumbled upon at the end of a bodybuilding.com uh, article that had like this little URL link right down the bottom and it was, I clicked on it, didn't know what it was and it was actually like this 
a scientific paper that opened up and it was a, an open access one which means uh, like anyone could read it yep and I clicked on it and started reading it and I was blown away by the fact that these scientists had written out an article explaining what they had done how they had tested it what they had uh, achieved and even though some of the technical lingo I couldn't understand the basics around it I could the information was um, delivered quite eloquently so it was really cool really interesting and it blew my mind that that was free information for people to like take on board and yep. um, so I started sitting on PubMed and Google Scholar and anything that would give me access to articles and uh, went from reading that article to about six to ten a day I had a minimum of six a day that I would read for, and I did that for about 18 months until I've now got nearly 3,000 papers on my computer of the things that I've read in wow. around nutrition, exercise, psychology, um, essentially anything that I'm interested in. A little bit of game theory when it came to um, some economics, but like that was just to understand some of the concepts that were going on in um, biology because we seem to see similar patterns go on in that. How, over how many years have you acquired those 3,000? Oh, that was patients? just in... That was over about... 18 months or something like that. That, wow. was, okay. that was my initial first folder, um, and now I've got bigger, bigger folders everywhere. Um, right. So that was yeah. My minimum goal was to read six six papers a day for the first year to bring my understanding up because I thought okay. I knew what was going on. I thought are these the papers I, summaries? No, no, no. These the are entire, entire study. Paper. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So um, some lengthy reading. Yeah. Well, it was like we've got downtime at work. If you weren't training, you were sitting yeah. around smoking diaries. Who, who would know that infantry could read as well? Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. shoot good. Yeah, pretty much. Like big dudes. Yeah. <laughs> we do it good. So, yeah. That was yeah. Essentially, it. so it was just do that to pass the time. Um, when we'd go out field and stuff like that, having just a, a tablet if we had access to a soft standing, which is for those that don't understand access to like a normal concrete slab and some power or something like that if we had access to that I was taking something where I could do some reading on it um, keeping myself entertained through doing that everyone read books or smoked diaries and trade um, play cards and I would just read these studies like I was addicted I couldn't stop so um, before you know it I started arguing with a lot of people online about what they thought was right and <laughs> calling people out um, before I knew it a lot of people knew me as this guy that would call people out and start these arguments online and I'd get it was back in the era when forums were kind of fading out. Facebook was really big for everyone tagging you and something and having a massive argument on Facebook. Yep. Now it seems Facebook's dead and it's kind of Instagram yep. and a bit of Twitter. Um, but actually, one, when, of our, one of our first first conversations was this is what on, I was going to tell yeah, you. on on um, one of the first conversations on Facebook was engaging. It wasn't it wasn't an argument. Um, I think yeah, because of the fact that we both had a knowledge of what was doing what. Um, as opposed to a lot of bro science guys you debate with online and you give yep. up because there's no point arguing with the wall. The conversations of, I think it was a video I put Mate, up. hang on. Walls are useful. Sorry, sorry. Bro, yeah. scientists bro science are not useful. Pseudo, pseudo geniuses. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it led to, um, when I first started actually appreciating what Dalton knew was that uh, not too often um, there was someone who could not keep up but have a more lengthy knowledge of what I had and keep going with the conversation. And so we had a conversation on Facebook. Um, I can't remember what the movement was I was doing. It was either a squat or a row or something. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. And it was about uh, generating force by being having keeping the spine static or a slight extension and uh, flexion of the lower spine to fully retract. Um, yeah. yeah, it was either a dynamic movement or a static movement, and which one had more application and where. 
and we were talking the ins and outs of how and why context mattered and um, that's what we were, we were coming at from different points. I liked what Ben was doing but I didn't, I would improve it in my own way uh, with allowing a, a little less dynamic movement uh, at first and then once I've seen someone build up over time some good base strength then allowing a little bit more but generally without context I prefer people to take a, a stricter approach and go a little bit more static, especially if they're new or I have no access to their previous history of training until I make that call and Ben had a different idea and we spoke it out for yeah, a good couple of days. Like yeah. there's just, there's just different threads. It was good, but I think, I think that's something that needs to happen more in the industry um, is rather than aggressive debate of my idea is right and you're wrong. It's, establishing why someone's aspect might be right or looking from the outside in yeah. like I very could have easily just been like ticked off that some dude I really knew like commented on a video and was like you're an idiot um, instead it was like we both got to a point and was like alright cool I see what you're talking about here's why I did it uh, that aspect can still apply and he's like here's what I would have you do yeah. that's now I was like this guy actually knows what he's talking about um, which I think doesn't happen enough with online coaches or Instagrammers and whatnot where someone seems to think it's the their one-stop shop their idea is what's it and that's it and you if you disagree who don't disagree um, I think that that conversation sparked the relationship between us which then led to me actually trusting what he was saying like someone that can take what I already know and improve it, it generally is pretty good in my books yeah Nice. Yeah. Cool. All right, mate. Um, one of the questions I want to get to with all of those papers that you read, have you seen any um, any shifts in the way of scientific thinking from back in 2010 to now in terms of movement and w w what were the other type of papers you were reading? So uh, a lot around biology. The movement, uh, I've seen more of a shift in um, ACL work at the moment. So rehab to uh, like a post-surgery rehab through to return to work yeah um, and a lot of that is actually because of my exposure to a, a brilliant physiotherapist called Tim Rowland um, he uh, and getting access to that and seeing his uh, and he's a big proponent uh, ACL uh, physio and so seeing how people are changing from their uh, surgery and their rehabilitation techniques there through to what they're doing now um, a lot of it's really cool education wise that's probably what I see the biggest shifts at the moment in probably the last 10 years um, with movement, with nutrition. It's been circadian rhythm is probably the biggest one. And for those that aren't aware, essentially our bodies run on this about, it's almost 24 hours, uh, this cycle, cycle that we go through. Um, as we shift from daytime to nighttime, our body facilitates different up or down regulations of our organs and our brain. So we'll go through different phases of what our body's meant to be doing. Because we operate in the daylight, our organs operate a little bit better during the day than they do at night. Makes sense. Um, and so back then, 2010, there was a lot of work being done on rats. Rats are nocturnal, so when we see them operating really well at nighttime and not so well in the daytime, some people make that false correlation between a rat's improvement in their lifestyle uh, through affecting or improving their circadian biology. Um, whereas for us it, it actually wouldn't necessarily um, correlate quite well so from that we're starting to see now shifts into human studies um, we're starting to see when those timings when those feedings should be taking or shouldn't be taking place because now it's it's quite clear anyone that's a shift worker 
is like smoking, like non-activity, like being um, having poor nutrition, shift worker is now a complete risk factor for cardiovascular disease, stroke. Wow. Yeah, just in itself. So it's so damaging to the body that shift working is now considered a, a sign that adds to those uh, at-risk factors. Do you think that could eventually apply and essentially be a mark against in say private health and stuff I, I wholeheartedly um we're starting to see well like we've got quite clear evidence between shift workers um who are just strict nighttime workers and those who go through rotating rosters so they'll do days afternoons and then nights yeah. so typically people in the health industry doctors nurses nurses yeah paramedics all those yep. miners and stuff like that typically yep. you see that um sometimes in security you see it as well but more so they're on strict uh, day nine rosters right um so those people being at risk the most actually probably more likely be marked down towards um things like insurance or uh, quality of life and stuff because they're at such a high risk from partaking in those activities wow so because it's funny now that we don't see as much um they're not paid as much as for the damage of the health that they are like we would yeah. expect night work and stuff is generally rewarded quite well but now compared to the actual damage done i wouldn't trade it for the freaking life of me from yeah. everything that i read so. i always hated it having to do nights that will pick it mm -hmm. my god mm -hmm. but then not only that because working as a as a chef in the army like when we had to do night shift and stuff absolutely hated so you do like two or three nights on and then come on for mm -hmm. day mm -hmm. and just that rotating yeah you just feel like oh. death at seven nights that's can, it can you do enough night work for the like obviously the body is wants yes. to be homeostasis and adapt can the body with enough night work adapt to that cycle yes Mate, I'll ask questions, okay well, now i'm interested what ben said <laughs> cool all right um so yes it can to a small degree it doesn't no way is our biology so reactive that if we change something in our environment does our whole physiology change yep. if we did we would have died millions of years ago and t-rexes would be sitting here currently having this conversation or velociraptors <laughs> um so we yes we can adapt a little bit and it can be done through the biggest things that help with that are maintaining consistency in your uh, routine that you go through so yeah. if you get up you get up at the same time uh, you do the same activities you try and have similar sized meals um, you do some weight training because that seems to improve things like blood glucose levels, insulin levels. Um, you do some cardiovascular training so that improves obviously some of the negative health impacts that you're going to have. So yes, you can to a, a, a portion, but you're always going to have things suffer because of it. Interesting. That's, man, that's absolutely amazing to be honest hearing that. I mean, because personally I know I never liked it and it didn't agree with me, but I mean like... It's like saying dairy doesn't agree with something yep. it does with others. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's really interesting. And I know oh, a lot of people that are on that chef's mm -hmm. health, um, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's extremely interesting. I, I, as After I ask the question, do you think it will change with uh, like so insurance and stuff, I then find it hard if you're a, a doctor, you're meant to be at the pinnacle of health and you have a, a health insurance company trying to tell you no. I think they're, they've got enough money in pool mm -hmm. um, being in the health industry that they might be able to stop that. But definitely I feel something needs to be done to educate them and, and have ways around it, whether it is... Comp I, I don't think compensation with money should be done because mm -hmm. we, we need those people there and mm -hmm. money doesn't fix everything. Mm -hmm. I definitely think the, um, 
that they need to have uh, sort of they need to have stuff in place to really educate these people and make sure they are making the most of yeah. of staying healthy. One of the biggest things that like even the first thing that they could do just as a quick way to improve the the rotating shift work just make that uh, a hell of a lot longer than two or three days or like one yeah because not ever having that time to get uh find that circadian rhythm find that um, natural rhythm that our bodies go through and constantly upsetting that pushing you forward uh your sleep forward or backwards enough to keep impacting that that's the first thing that should go that was introduced as a way to compromise between having shift work earlier on and people who didn't want to do it and it was trying to make it more enticing and stuff um, I'm fairly certain it was introduced from the mining sector but I could be wrong um, and they did that as a way to encourage people to take it so that they were uh, able to have still some normal days where they could go do whatever an administration or feel like a normal human being for a couple yeah. of days then do some afternoons where they could potentially do something in the morning and then nights where they were unavailable throughout the day uh, when they were working nights it was kind of like this compromise as to forever having nights and not getting any days to ever do anything when our whole world operates between 8am and 4pm kind of things. As a coach, like, I think I, I, I would know that you've got a couple of clients that would be shift workers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, like 10, 20,000 years ago, we were having to be awake early mm-hmm. because of fight or flight response and the fact that if you stayed asleep, you would get eaten. Do you notice that clients that do shift work, even though they're tired and they go to bed for the day, they don't get as much sleep? Yeah, so one of the big things that's regulated through this is melatonin. So that's a uh, hormone that actually helps regulate how our exposure from day into nighttime gets regulated through our circadian biology. So by having these different sleeping patterns, they actually impair that melatonin output. So yeah, they definitely have impaired ability throughout the next day. Their sleep quality is always crap. They're waking up multiple times throughout the uh, the day, afternoon, whenever they're sleeping, morning. Um, and generally that's due to sleep environment as well. You think about when we go to sleep, it's pitch black, it's generally cool. Um, you're in uh, a low noise time because the whole, the rest of the world's going to sleep. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. Locally, the rest of the world around you is going to sleep. So you've got all of those things. If you're trying to sleep in the, during the day, you've got high noise quality, high um, light uh, permittance through the rooms. You've got generally no or a lower melatonin output at that time anyway because your body's not preparing for sleep technically normally at 8 a.m. So having to try and get to sleep um, and get the good quality sleep that you would get somewhere around 10 to, uh, sorry, 9 hour, nine p.m. through to 12, uh, 12 a.m., that sleep quality is always going to be a lot better because your body would naturally push that melatonin production higher not at 8 a.m. so you're going to find that that impairs it as well irregardless of how much training how much tiring things they do to get themselves to sleep and stuff the sleep quality is never going to be as high they may may get eight hours so that would have a huge like detrimental snowball effect on not only sleep but obviously the aspects of what sleep has in terms of like getting into REM sleep hormone release hormone regulation recovery growth mm-hmm. so anyone doing any sort of like trying to train to get tired you would not be recovering optimally from the training therefore making it more detrimental 100 um it's actually one of the things that i was leading into before is the biggest shift that i've seen in overall physiology is the role that both nutrition and training have from a clinician through down through to a pt as being the overall uh 
guiding principles or sorry guiding factors that help you get good or bad body composition good or bad performance are kind of being kicked to the curb as sleep is now the biggest overall governing factor as we're starting to understand it yep. because we're seeing more people with uh, sleep impairments we're seeing what that does to their body uh, what that does to their brain what that does to their longevity so we're really seeing the negative health impacts from having impaired sleep or uh, worse sleep uh, so that age-old um, bro science pyramid we used to have of the 60 percent training 30 percent nutrition 10 percent sleep is way out the window yeah yeah or well, like you know, sacrifice to win and no pain no gain where you just get up at four in the morning to to go <laughs> train or whatever <laughs> and do that it's like okay cool that's great but if you sleep like shit and you don't like get the active recovery and then your body's not going to perform well anyway so that big sleep is a is a massive one we know even just from like a, a, a typical weight loss uh there's an awesome study that came out from finland where they compared 6.5 hours to 8.5 hours of sleep and there was the same total amount of weight lost but guess who had the most amount of muscle mass restored eight and a half yeah, yeah. There's a difference of like 1.3 or 1.6 kilos so right like wow. it's, it's not a small amount that's two hours of sleep. That's six point five. Most people consider six hours good sleep. Go oh, figure. That's like the minimum. Like, right. You know, that's the minimum you got to have. I feel like sometimes yeah. I go under. Yeah. Like, I mean, like everyone. Yeah. Gets sleep's a funny one because we have these hard recommendations where we're like six hours or eight hours and get you know trying to help them with that. The bigger thing that we found, and this is true for HRV training, it's true for cardiovascular work, it's true for most strength training, is there's a this underlying tone of subjective feel that goes along with the objective measure that we're trying to get you to do. So the objective measure would be six to eight hours of sleep. How you feel at six hours, six and a half, seven hours, seven and a half, eight hours, and trying to understand which one of those feels better for you as a person is going to be the guiding factor as to why you pick that amount of time to sleep. There are, and I hate saying this, people that perform well on crappy amounts of sleep because everyone will try and tell me that this this person and it's less than one percent of the population so fuck off you're not <laughs> but if you subjectively you feel fine on four hours of sleep and you can do that for a month and your weight training doesn't go down and your body composition stays fine cool i'll believe it i'll even eat my own words and give you a year's coaching but it really doesn't happen that often so focus on the subjective measure along with what you're trying to be objective about What's your opinion from those studies as well with the ever-increasing blue light, uh, let's call it radiation or exposure, just because yeah, everything so, we have uses it? Yeah, it's a, it's a really funny one. It's one we're seeing um, information for it showing that after a certain amount of time, it's not great. Um, and that's why you see the things like iPhone were massive when they put out um, the dimmer. Yeah, the dimmer after a certain amount of time. And we definitely know that artificial light really does impair sleep. So it's not something it's not something to laugh at. But there's only so far you can take it. Our yeah. understanding of what these studies show is that artificial light isn't helping us. It doesn't mean remove all like mm. blue light ambience that comes through and you know anything that hits you through um, your um, Cornea, sorry, your cones and your rods at the back of your eye, then like you can't avoid everything that's going through there uh, to potentially offset some of the negative effects of it. So you do see swings of people taking something that does have small amount of evidence to say, watch this behavior, maybe do 
maybe don't sit on your phone up until you fall asleep or something like that is probably a good idea and if you are put it on that dimmer mode so that it has less uh, chance to delay that sleep partly the reason that happens is because of delayed melatonin output so yep. um, because our eyes are sensitive to the light it then set, uh, picks up the information coming out from the light as we've got daylight going on around us so if you can limit uh, how much exposure you get of that after you know at least 8 p.m or something like that it wouldn't be bad for you i think that's more so too that um rather than specifically that being the one reason why people aren't sleeping uh environmental factors and psychology plays or behavioral psychology plays a bit bigger aspect to it like um, how you set yourself up to sleep is the more important thing so like if you're in a mood where you're on the couch watching tv flicking on your phone all those things going on at once your brain's gonna have so much information and things going through it that it's like i don't want to sleep if you actually set yourself up to sleep in a room where there's no phone, there's no TV. You know, if you put your phone in a spare room or whatever, so it's away from you, um, like those behaviors will mean you get a better sleep. That mm-hmm. night routine. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, we like to call that sleep hygiene. So we go through yeah. a list of uh, at least six to 10 things that we go, hey, what are you doing over nighttime? How are you winding down so that you can improve these? These are just basic things like, how dark is your room? Is there light in your room? Uh, where, which way are you facing? Because we tend to have a psychological response whether you're facing towards the door or to, away from the door. So test whether facing towards the door or away from the door makes you feel more or less nervous. So you can uh, increase your comfortability and fall asleep better. I think if someone slept with their head towards the door, I would consider them a psychopath. <laughs> because that is just the most, that's like what built into us yeah, right. for the last millions millions and millions of years like well, you'd sleep in a cave feet towards the enemy yeah. hey, I've got to get up and run like, yeah. I'm going out that so window so yeah, like, like, tiger comes in and starts <laughs> chewing on your foot at least it's not your neck so yeah, at least right. got a chance to grab your club and belt I think, I think I relate to the psycho more than like really? this I'd rather go like that than have someone half eat me and then have to suffer through torment and that for the next couple of hours okay yep mental yeah. Right, you, right, you can leave. Yeah. Yeah. I don't sleep that way. I think I just understand. <laughs> oh, oh, right. okay, so for later. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sleep hygiene. We we get um, everyone to check out. We've got a list of sleep hygiene things. It's stuff I've gone through with you uh, a lot more. Uh, sorry, a lot less formula, formally uh, that we've spoken about. But yeah, for most clients, got up a document that says check off these things. Let's see what we can improve on, what we can't. Um, I get people to use a sleep cycle app. It's brilliant. It um, measures how much movement and activity and stuff that you do through the night. It shows roughly how much REM cycle, deep and light sleep you're getting throughout the night. So we can start to see if you're having really good quality sleep. Um, It actually does a really good job of uh, rating your sleep as well. So if we start to see that it tears towards good quality sleep, people generally feel better than their training and body composition all of a sudden performs. Look at me, I'm a wizard. With that, in that aspect, is six hours of deep sleep better hormonally recovery-wise and general dysfunction of sleep than eight to nine hours of just being in bed and tossing and turning? 100%. Yeah, it's always the quality 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 and quantity. Unfortunately, like if you sleep for the body, not getting REM cycle sleep and being in a lighter sleep state is the same physiologically as lying down on the couch and watching TV and not doing anything and being in that lower stress. Sure, you're um, not stimulating your body, you're sort of stressing your body by uh, doing something that requires adaptation, but you're not getting any of 
for lack of more scientific words, the processing that needs to happen through REM cycle that allows you to go from short term to long term and function the next day so that you don't, you know, hate people. <laughs> you've you've got a Fitbit on, so it would track your what it considers quality of sleep just through movement. Mm-hmm. Do you feel can, can you see like so when you like upload it onto the app and if you can see that you've been quite you know, fidgety throughout the night, moving around, not having that sleep. Can you see the difference and go, oh yeah, I'm feeling this way because of what that's saying? Essentially, you know what I mean? I'll put it in my own words. I can see, like I know, I wake up feeling like, I feel like I've had a pretty shit sleep. Yeah. And then Fitbit will just confirm it for me. I'll feel like, oh, I've had a great sleep. And then Fitbit will confirm it for me just from the amount of movement. It's odd. Sometimes I can see it and feel like I'm less exhausted one day, but it'll say I've had a, a weird sleep. I feel like if I were to think like if I were to look at it and then go, oh yeah, I had a shit, like a shit sleep, I'm gonna have a bad day. That'd be more of a confirmation bias that I've just seen it and gone, yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know, sometimes I wake up after five or six hours sleep feeling refreshed as hell, but then yeah. I can have a deep sleep of like eight hours and I wake up more exhausted um, than if I just had that standard five or six hours. I don't know if I just got myself into a bad routine of that sleep, but at the same time, it's, um, yeah, it's, you can. Um, like I'll see it and be like, oh, it makes sense. Like, what did I do that night? If I trained too late, if I had my pre too late, um, if I had too many like chores, um, I've got a pretty, pretty intense routine with keeping neat active during prep. So I've like kept a lot of that up um, now. So I'm noticing I'm still a little bit as wide, but without the. What, what do you mean keeping neat as in like so, through the house? No, no. So neat as in like my uh, non-exercise active thermogenics. Right, so okay. the intent to stay active as much as possible to keep burning calories right keep my steps up keep my heart rate up just keep doing things staying active um i was pretty wired um to doing just weird things or constant chores just so i would stay busy um so it's kind of a, a detrimental but also positive because it would mean i wasn't uh, relaxing and allowing my body to de-stress but it meant i was still constantly fidgety and moving and that all plays a role in obviously uh, calorie maintenance or calorie deficit um so i guess I would, I'm trying to figure out those things of what I was doing too late or too early before bed. And that like it, that way, if I see it and it's like, right, I had crap sleep, I was way too busy before I went to bed and that time was spent trying to then de-stress and get to sleep. So I was like, right, let's not do that so late. Mm-hmm. A couple of things on that. Firstly, time that you wake up, when you wake up, if you wake up in the middle of a REM cycle, you will feel like you've been hit by a truck. So not that you've, what you've done anything wrong for sleep per se, it's just when your body's gone through and moved through these REM cycles. Um, if you're waking up to an alarm, as opposed to just naturally waking up, your body won't wake up halfway through a REM cycle naturally. If it gets woken up by a stimulus, it will. Um, that's why an alarm can be a negative thing. And that's why I like this sleep cycle app because it has a half an hour window in which it will monitor your sleep to see when you are at the lightest sleep that it can wake you up by setting off the alarm. So having a hard time to wake up can impair where you wake up and that contributes you to feeling like shit. Second thing, I can't remember what you said and I forget. But third thing was <laughs> the, the NEAT that you were just talking about there. For those that don't understand, NEAT is a component of our overall uh, expenditure of energy over the course of a day. NEAT stands for Non-Exercise Activity Thermogenesis. And Ben described it in a way, and it's, he's not wrong, um, for him to keep active throughout what he was doing with prep there. 
when we split up total daily energy expenditure, we get our basal metabolic rate, which is how much energy you burn not doing anything. If you were to lie around every day, your body would still burn calories. That's how you can get mad shredded, bro, by just staying still active. No, not really. Your body will burn calories just by <laughs> staying down, right? So that happens anyway. So this is why, like, another rant that people misattribute how much exercise calories they burn because guess what the body would burn calories anyway at rest so it's not actually as much as you think but anyway so you've got your basal metabolic rate you've got your activity thermogenesis so that's how much formal exercise you do you could do weight training you could go for a run that's formal activity you then have your thermic effect of feeding which is if you eat food your body has to convert that into biochemical properties part of that is a heat exchange and we lose that so we're actually not very efficient it's a good thing because it helps keep us warm and stops us from dying the last component is our neat non-exercise activity thermogenesis and what we find with people who go through weight loss if you lose from 80 kilos to 70 kilos right from being slightly overweight to normal as an example um, you will have a down regulation in how much neat you do so how much daily fidgeting you do how much daily walking you do you'll find subconsciously you won't even think about it you'll park closer to the shops you'll walk next to the only in the aisles that you need to you won't spend another hundred calories walking around for an extra hour because your body is trying to protect you from dying so me tracking Ben's neat over during his prep is a way that I can regulate how much activity he's doing every day to make sure that his output is as high as maximally possible without it stressing into his training, into his sleep quality, and into his nutrition. Shit. That's, that's insane. That's so like coming, coming from, obviously, you would be with the type of prep you do for these guys, it is the entire life. Um, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. We everything because like we were, uh, we're talking about before with sleep. Actually, that's what it was. Lifestyle factors that lead up to because we know recovery is not an on-off switch. You don't do a training session the next rest of the day. This is how people think about it. When I get, talk to them, they they do biceps on Monday. Come Tuesday, they expect their biceps to be recovered. Right. That doesn't make any sense. If you train Tuesday fucking week, right? right? Yeah, right. Maybe. If you train hard, like your biceps <laughs> are not going to be recovered the yeah. very next day. But people think of recovery as like you do a training session and then we're into the next day, so I'm recovered. They don't instant, think about instantly delivered nutrients. Still, and... Yeah, it's still like this. It's it's instead it's this wave that like peaks and takes time. So you have you go through a shit week and something happens and you feel like crap for one day. Your body's still trying to recover from that two to three days later. It might not feel like it on your mind, but physiologically there are responses as to why that's going on and what's the body doing to adjust that. Same with training. It's got like a anywhere from two to seven day lag time. You do a big leg session, you're going to walk funny for a week until you know your body's caught up and recovered again. Yep. So that's where distribution of training matters. But not only that, distribution of nutrients, how his sleep's going, what's going on with his daily activity, how he's doing, what he's doing with supplements, how he's feeling in life, what's going on, uh, like subjective measures with objective measures. We couple that. We try and measure everything that we can manipulate because by measuring that, we know what he's doing to make things work and not work. And then we can emulate that with other clients. If Ben responds really well to keeping his activity at 10,000 steps a day, then we can try and see if other clients respond the same way. If they have that same response, cool. What else did Ben really respond well to that we can test on them to see if they are a similar type of makeup, genetic makeup um, like Ben. Yes, not everyone is 100% the same, but trying to find trends in which you've done something and responses, it gives you at least 
guidance towards making the right decisions. It's why it's why you'll never oh, I would say never find them they're successful. You'll find a lot of coaches that don't maintain data on variables very shortcoming or like they'll come and go. They they won't last very long. They might uh, prescribe protocols or systems that are very outdated or unmeasured. Um, they might get some quick results from someone and then that same application can't apply to someone else mm-hmm. because they don't know the variables of what that person was doing, going through, feeling, uh, applying to, um, in, including, and then giving it to someone else and go, well, well, it worked for me, so why doesn't it work for you? Um, not to like, not to anyone does it, but it's like uh, saying something like a vegan diet or a keto diet, like that can apply, like everyone should start on keto because you've got to reset their insulin and metabolic adaptions or whatever. That one person might have adapted that way biologically physiologically uh, but if you don't track every aspect of that we can't then go all right well that that should work for this person if it doesn't what else what did that person do that, that person didn't do so it's why you find a lot of coaches now uh, or any good um, trainer coach dietitian will start or should be starting to keep track of more data information uh, variables anything that can affect not just training but lifestyle aspects and, and nutrition should be kept in a folder in a file somewhere where you can go back six months we can literally see um we won't dwell on it too much but we can literally go back in time in my data and look at weeks i had uh home life issues uh we'll call it per se (laughs) because my weight fluctuated i um was developing crazy anxiety i wasn't sleeping um at a point where we're supposed to be bulking in a phase Prior to comp, I was supposed to be bulking at roughly 4,500 calories a day. I was feeling vomit sick at 2,000. And that wasn't because I, I was force feeding the food. I can eat, I'm eating 3,500 today like it's nothing. Um, that 2,000, hormonally, the stress, the cortisol, the other hormones affecting my digestion were preventing me from wanting to eat that much food. And we can literally look back and go, okay, why did that happen? What was happening that week, that day, that month that led to that? Um, and there's too many coaches. And they. the good thing is, they come and go like competition breeds quality um, that don't keep track of all this and they won't succeed but at the same time it means they're not giving the best option to their clients or the best uh, effort and that'll lead to poor results I definitely think that it's also important to know your clientele 100% could you imagine so I like some of my clients if I tried to get them to call this data they'd honestly tell me to fuck off they'd be like just want to come in and train with you and talk shit for X yeah, amount of minutes. Like, yeah, 100%. And then I want to leave. Yeah. But then there's others I totally agree. So, and that's that's a constant battle I find is like, how much information do you want to give me? Yeah. When you are giving me this information, is it all the information? Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. there's a good guy who does podcasts, you probably agree, Mac Baker. He does uh, um, like uh, a lot of information spreading on you don't want to track fine but let's get within reason of eating healthy yeah. mm-hmm. giving some information um, being within a, a range I guess of what would be a rough guesstimation of calories mm-hmm. or what not you know, what did you eat but in a rough yeah. idea yeah. and that that applies to most gen pop like not everyone has the laser focus or dedication to be like oh, I want a bodybuilder I want to be a peak performing athlete they just want to improve general life health and come into the gym have a little ramble as, as someone who used to PT probably 90% of my clients were people who love the mon- one or two sessions a week. I try, You try to give them nutrition advice and they'll stick to it, but they're not gonna report data and log everything, yeah. um, which is fine. You get that 10% that are like, I want this body composition, I want this performance outcome, I want this weight lifted. Those are the ones that need to understand tracking is relevant, tracking yeah. is required. 
every variable needs to be accounted for. Definitely. Um, but yeah, there's obviously going to be the gen pop that um, you know, your middle-aged mum who's just had a hard week and wants to come in and talk a bit of dribble about her husband or something like that. Um, and that's fine. That, that's just what they want. Um, as long as they're improving or feeling like they're getting something out of it, obviously that is well, placebo as much of the output as, yeah. as what the effect is. So if they're feeling like they're getting something out of it, they're enjoying it, they're going to get just as much somewhat of a result as if they did recorded everything. Yeah. Some people find it more of a stress than not a stress, which would be detrimental. Yep. Yeah, we, um, we're very lucky about FlexiSess. We have a very a great brand name. Everyone recognizes it for what it is. More people recognize it for our comp prep approach. However, about 70% of our clients are gen pop. Right. And so we have all this data tracking capacity, but we don't use it. Just because we have it all there and we have another system and things in place to capture it, doesn't mean we actually require everyone to uh, report back on it. What we do is we find the lowest hanging fruit for most people that they will adhere to and we try and improve that slowly over time. So some people come to us looking for complete education, some people come to us looking for complete guidance and they just wanna follow along to uh, either a meal plan or a training plan or just kind of be told roughly what to do and never have to wanna think about it for themselves, which is cool. You just kinda gotta meet them where they're at. With Dalton, I've gone through phases of that. Uh, When it came to the last 12 weeks of prep, I just straight up told him and was like, do not give me a macro where I can be flexible. Do not give me a day where I can make up my own food choices. Do not give me a day where I can lean in. Like if I, if I- Cocoa Pops all day. Yeah, <laughs> I, like, literally I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to know about it. I just wanted to know that at this time I was eating this meal. Um, like it got to a certain point where I would suggest changes because I knew the rough similar qualities of protein or um, uh, carbs or things like that. Um, and I would just say, look, uh, like 200 grams of chicken isn't providing enough density volume um, I end up drink moving to oh, 1.2 liters of egg white a day just because it meant that I was eating more food and that wasn't Dalton's advice that was my choice because yep. I wanted to be more full for work for training for just life um, yep. and I got to a point where 200 grams of chicken was not enough to fill me 500 grams of egg whites was would substitute that and yep. then I got to eat more mm-hmm. so it's um, yeah, that aspect is okay. But for me, during prep, especially that last 12 weeks where things got really intense, yeah. I was like, I need just everything told what to do, when to do it, and I will get it done. I was like, you will not get a question. The question, like, I would question more so for education, not question as to why he's doing a question, or can I do something else? Um, like when we went into heavy states of depletion, cardio, uh, cutting carbs, higher protein, why we're dropping this or that. I would ask why, but that wasn't a, I think you're an idiot. It was- Yeah, it wasn't belligerent, it was yeah, for knowledge. Yeah, exactly. For me personally, I want to know why we're doing something. Yeah, cool. Um, and that builds my knowledge off him, but at the same time, it's like, in terms of what we're actually doing, just tell me to shut up and do it, because with 12 weeks of prep left, like that's what's gonna get results, and that's yeah. what I wanna do. So you get, like, I've gone through the different stages of being those clients, as well as having those clients. So like, you can sort of see both approaches. Yeah. Um, there were stages where it was like, uh, we're going through a bulk, so I didn't need to be as strict. So I was like, all right, um, this is what I'm done. We're going, I'm going out for dinner. Uh, we're going to grilled. I think I might get these two burgers. I'd be like, yep, yeah, cool. Um, I got to a stage where I'd, if calories were not too high, but not too low, I might fast two meals and go, all right, well, instead of having those two meals, I'll have two burgers at dinner. And so there's different approaches to it um, that we applied. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that last 12 weeks was, I don't want to think, I don't want to question, I don't want to know, just tell me and it's done. Yeah, for most people, the first 20% of education that they ever receive will deliver 80% of the results. After that, 
we will start to see small increases in, in, uh, of education and smaller returns, and it gets smaller and smaller of the law of diminishing returns, right? So, so we will get that. For all my gen pop clients, I really push them to be about 80% compliant. So if I tell them eat 2,000 calories, train five days a week, try and get six to eight hours of sleep, do 10,000 steps, out of everything that I give them as their list for their goals for the week, I put them all together, I do a quick division to find them as a percentage, and I go, all right, cool, how roughly were uh, compliant were you this week? Finding that out and go, all right, cool, you were 75% compliant, let's improve a little bit on something where we can. The lowest hanging fruit, it could be something as simple as drink a little bit more water. Um, and push that in uh, adherence above 80%. 80% will give them 100% of the results that they want. Going to the full 100%, unless you're jumping on stage, you're adding more stresses, you're taking away the ability for flexibility, and you're uh, making it even harder for you to enjoy the, uh, the program, because life it fucking sucks and it gets in the way. If you're not enjoying life just to get these results, then we're kind of working a little bit backwards here. And I think you'd either benefit from some psychology work as opposed to food uh, mm. education and training and stuff. And once you've gotten over that mental aspect, then we can come back and approach to the rest. But 80% will give you most of the results the fastest time with the most amount of flexibility. So you've kind of follow along in that rule. Um, with 80% with my flex clients, uh, as soon as they come to prep, sorry, I get them on 100% compliance every day for that because it shifts from being a battle against yourself to improve your physique to a battle against yourself and everyone else who's going to get up on that stage. And by God, they're going to do whatever they can to beat you. So you better be. And I know to, I did. You better be willing to do something more yeah. than what they're willing to do to to beat them. Alrighty, team. We are going to wrap it up there. So we've just gone over an hour. Uh, guys, making sure that you tune in next week for Ben and Dalt episode 8.2. We're going to start off next week straight away with talking about um, Ben's comp prep and how it leads into that, uh, as well as some great opinion-based uh, questions towards the end. So uh, a bit of a lighter side and a, a bit of humor towards the end of next week's episode, team. So I know you're going to love it. Um, for now, guys, jump on to socials. Please give us a like and uh, a thumbs up and a comment and whatever else you need to do uh, for the podcast. It'd be greatly appreciated. Tell us what you think. Guys, if you know anyone that wants to get involved or you think would be great for the podcast, please just reach out to us on our socials, so ATP Fitness AU. That'd be muchly appreciated. And guys, if you love an episode, make sure you take a screenshot for us and uh, tag us in it uh, on your socials. We'd love to repost and reshare. Just show the love um, because we do care about all of our listeners. And yeah, team, until next time, um, making sure you tune in for next episode, 8.2 with Ben and Dolph. Catch you later, guys. Bye.